ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, if you like what you hear on the SRB Podcast, consider becoming a monthly sustainer on Patreon or make a one-time donation. This podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. Becoming a monthly sustainer for a mere $5 or $10 helps me give you in-depth discussions about Russia and the wider region that you won't find anywhere else. You can help support the podcast by going to seansrussiablog.org. The Chernobyl nuclear accident in 1986 had dire and long-lasting effects on Belarus. According to one news report in 2016, 70% of Chernobyl's radioactive fallout fell in Belarus, contaminating a quarter of the country and one-fifth of its agricultural land. About 7 million people were affected. More than 2,000 towns and villages were evacuated, and half a million people have relocated since 1986. According to the NGO Chernobyl International, the disaster costs Belarus about 20% of its annual budget. So what is the story of Chernobyl in Belarus? How did the effects of radiation become visible and invisible in the last 30 years? How do people live with contamination? I turned to Olga Kuchinskaya for the story about making radiation visible and invisible in Belarus. Olga Kuchinskaya is an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Pittsburgh. She specializes in science communication related to health and the environment. She's the author of The Politics of Invisibility, Public Knowledge About Radiation Health Effects After Chernobyl, published by MIT Press. Here's Olga Kuchinskaya. I thought we'd start by by having you talk about how you got interested in Chernobyl and, and the politics of representing the disaster. I was doing my graduate PhD work at the University of California, San Diego, and I actually had a different topic picked up. And then a friend of mine randomly asked me at a dinner, what were the consequences of Chernobyl? Just because I was born in Belarus, which was heavily affected by, uh, by the Chernobyl nuclear accident. And I went home and Googled it. And what I found was online reports and all kinds of press releases by the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation. And the reports were claiming, in essence, that Chernobyl was a myth. So uh, according to the reports, among the general population, the only disease linked to radiation exposure was thyroid cancer in children. So there was some increase in thyroid cancer in children, but really all other health problems were blamed on radiophobia, so um, the fear of radiation, or maybe stress resulting from the collapse of the Soviet Union and, and, and subsequent degradation of the living conditions. And the reports were very, they sounded very scientific and objective. But I was born in Belarus, and my um, understanding was that um, Chernobyl was a massive accident, and the fallout covered most of Europe, and um, 70% of the Belarusian territory was affected. So uh, I, I, I was just surprised. So I called friends in Belarus, and I, I kind of very naively asked them, so what were the effects of Chernobyl? And they all were trying to confirm to me that, yes, they were effects, and the numbers are out there. The numbers that they were quoting were vastly different, you know, 10,000, 40,000, 
more, like, I don't know, 100,000. And um, so I went back online and I was trying to find more. And the more I was reading, the more I was finding all kinds of perspectives and the more confused and uncertain I was becoming. And um, and I realized, so I thought that maybe the whole, um, maybe it's so difficult to estimate the effect of Chernobyl you know, and so the whole problem is just very complex and, and we still don't know. But then I saw that really I'm the only one who is uncertain and people have different perspectives. Somebody says, you know, that Chernobyl had minimal um, health effects. Others are saying that, you know, it had really huge health effects. So I um, had a second question, which is radiation is completely imperceptible. So if you can imagine the room that you're sitting in now, it can be radioactively contaminated and there nothing would change, right? It would look the same, it would smell the same, you know, your coffee would taste the same, everything would be exactly the same. So there's no kind of perceptual clues in the environment. So my second question was then how do people who live on heavily affected territories, um, how do they know? Especially since this is this is so-called low dose contamination. So this exposure does not have immediate um, health effects. It's not like you're exposed to a really high dose of radiation and then you um, develop some kind of health problems um, in a day or you know, a week. So the effects are delayed, which is kind of then strange, right? The, the exposure itself is imperceptible. You can't see when and how you're being exposed and the effects are delayed. So how do people know? And then generally, how do we know about the, um, the consequences of Chernobyl? So that became my main question. How do we know what we know about the consequences of the Chernobyl nuclear accident? I just like literally wanted to understand how this knowledge was produced. And also I was it's just one quote from Svetlana Alexievich's. So Svetlana Alexievich, uh, she later went on to win the Nobel Prize in Literature, but her, uh, her book on Chernobyl, Voices from Chernobyl, had a quote. I'm going to read the quote, if you don't mind. So the quote is, it's, I think these uh, um, kids, maybe like eight-year-olds, year so kids with cancer, talking um, at some hospital, and um, she writes, Yulia, Katya, Vadim, Oksana, Oleg, now Andrei, we will die and become signs, Andrei said. We will die and be forgotten, Katya thought. We will die, Yulia wept. And so to me, this we will die and become signs, and then contradiction, we will die and be forgotten, and just in the end, we will die, was very, it was very emotional. Like I, uh, I wanted to understand how exactly people are not forgotten and what social mechanisms guarantee that um, victims of Chernobyl, you know, are remembered and that their health effects are somehow documented. And also, the more I started thinking about it, the more I, um, I couldn't just accept the assumption that if there is a big accident, then the outcomes. So some health consequences would spontaneously be observable. That seemed to be a very uh, big leap of faith for me. Yeah, you, you point this out in the sense you, you put in, in talking about what you call the politics of invisibility, but also the politics of visibility. Um, you put this in the Chernobyl in a larger can, uh, context of, of natural disasters. So how, how does the, this politics of invisibility and visibility help us understand or think about natural disasters or disasters in general differently? So when an accident happens, right, some kind of disaster happens, that is very visible. Um, there's a lot of media attention, something is, you know, there's some distraction, 
there are some immediate visible consequences. The government has to swoop in and do heroic action and, you know, people are united. So there's a lot of visibility. And what I was interested in after Chernobyl was the long-term consequences when essentially it's no longer uh, it's no longer about the immediate situation, but how um, how the consequences, the longer term consequences, are dealt with. And uh, and again, it's uh, just imagine people are living in the areas that are very contaminated, especially like you know there there were uh, people living in the areas in Mogilev, for example, for the first four years after the accident, where the um, the contamination was comparable to the areas immediately around the Chernobyl um, nuclear planned. And um, so they, you know, they continue living. And my question is, human senses tell us nothing. So everything we learn about our environment, and you know, if we're in a, in a radioactively contaminated environment, everything that we learn comes from somewhere else, right? We, you know, we have to use dosimeters, or we have to look at some maps, or uh, we, we use media, or, you know, we hear um, stories describing somebody's health effects. So uh, our perception of radiation is always kind of highly mediated. And uh, my take on this was that how contamination and its health effects are represented can make them publicly visible and observable, or on the contrary, can make them unobservable and publicly non-existent. When I say that radiation can be made visible or um, invisible, what um, essentially my argument in the book is that people stopped paying attention or, you know, like the sort of, we, we failed to learn more about radiation health effects, not spontaneously, kind of like as a natural course where, you know, people forgot to pay attention, but it can be, the, it's sort of, it's the process opposite to the discovery of microbes. Uh, microbes are also um, invisible, right? And they were, you know, and they were clearly there before they were discovered by um, Louis a store right in the 19th century, but they um, but then they since became so recognized as social actors. You know, we see um, notes in the bathroom saying that you have to wash your hands, and there's all this um, you know antibacterial soap and you know other stuff. So essentially, microbes have been made visible. But I, I believe that the opposite is also true. That you know, radiation, invisible agents such as radiation, they can be made um, invisible, so they can kind of you know. They can become socially um, unobservable and invisible, and contamination um, more generally. It's it's interesting because the the because of this problem, vi the victims, um, you know, regular people, lay people who don't know anything about radiation, they're highly highly reliant on experts to explain to them what it is, how to understand it. Um, so it, there is a, a an important power relationship there. The thing about experts, um, especially in Belarus, was people clearly, people living in, even in the heavily contaminated areas, we cannot assume that uh, people just know and they have some kind of like privileged access to understanding their own health effects. They do observe something, but it's always a question of causality. If somebody is feeling bad, if they, are, if they have heart problems, is it because of radiation, of their past radiation exposure or ongoing radiation exposure, or is it because of something else? Maybe, you know, they... They were predisposed to have heart problems or something. So in, in that sense, radiation contamination and its health effects, they have to be established as social problems, 
because otherwise they, you know, they can still be there, but they would be just, you know, radiation and its health effects would just be kind of interpreted as individual health problems. People just get sick for no particular reason or, you know, for their own reasons. So the amazing thing that happens in Belarus is, so the first two years after the accident from 86 to 88, the Soviet government is essentially denying that there was a, you know, the, the, the scope of the accident, it's very contained. The area that's affected is described as like 30 kilometers around, well, first um, 18 kilometers, um, anyways, 30, 30 kilometers around the um, power plant. And um, the effects are assumed to be very short term. So they, they're all temporary. And in the media, it's described as, you know, the zone affected by, uh, the, the, it's, it's called the zone of special attention. So it's like, it's very contained um, in the language. And then the communist leadership tries to enact Chernobyl program, right? They, so they're calling for a five-year program to mitigate the effects of the Chernobyl accident. And that means that the program will have some kind of underlying um, scientific principles, right? So it's called the concept of radiation protection for how, you know, what is called, what is dangerous, what are the standards of radiation protection that, that we will use, that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like the yardstick for enacting the program. And this is also the period of greater openness in the society. This is around 88. And there's more uh, political opposition in Belarus. The Belarusian National Front emerges. And uh, they, they actively, so the Belarusian opposition and scientists who are politically opposed to what they call a radio secrecy. They try to propose their own concept of radiation protection, but also, very importantly, they resist in the media. So they pose their own questions um, in the media. They try to explain why their concept of radiation protection is better and more responsible. And as a result, they call attention to radiological contamination, right? And, and then in a little while, the maps are published. So people can finally see the maps of radiological contamination of Belarus. And they actually told, you know, they, you, should, you can gather mushrooms um, here, but not there. And gathering mushrooms is like practically a national sport. You know, like this is what people do instead of hiking. So it's, and uh, I think so the role of scientists was great in just making Chernobyl visible about like two and a half, three years um, after the accident in um in 89. But then also, yes, people living even in the most contaminated areas cannot know how much the area is contaminated unless somebody comes there with equipment and um, measures contamination in the environment, but also perhaps brings the whole body counter and measures, um, you know, internal accumulation in people. And so that people can learn some causal connections. If, you know, if they gather mushrooms in that forest or, you know, they do something else, then they will end up with high internal accumulations of radionuclides. So a lot of this really relies on the equipment. And as you point out, of course, I mean, all of this knowledge is one thing, but people do have to live there and people do go about their daily lives. And, uh, you know, access to this knowledge isn't 100%. And so how, how do people live in these contaminated areas? How do they deal with radiation? And, and how, do they, how do they understand it? Better than we do. They've been living there for a while, right? So they, they have accumulated some um, knowledge. So the first time I went to, um, to the contaminated areas, to, the sort of, to more contaminated areas in this house, what I was surprised with is sort of the range of doses, 
in the same community, people would have very different internal doses, right? If you um, if they measured with the whole body counters, there are people who have significant doses, and in, in the same community, people have less, you know, less internal accumulation, so um, smaller doses. And so I write in the book that it's kind of paradoxical, but. The administrators at the time talked quite frequently that um, people, individuals, make their own internal accumulation doses. So the food, um, the state food infrastructure does um, a good enough job to um, their um, entrance and exit controls on radiation, but people can create their own accumulations of radionuclides by consuming produce from their plots, for example, or um, you know gathering cranberries in um, you know in contaminated places, like particular contaminated places, or gathering mushrooms. Which is an economic problem to an extent, right? Because these are rural areas, and uh, people with fewer resources rely on free for you know forest goods more. But at the same time, so I was told, and I um, and I really believe this that so dealing with radiological contamination, you know, uh, on an individual basis, on the family, like if you're a family living in the affected areas, that requires um, a constant effort. You have to do something about your meat. You have to treat it somehow. You have to you have to bury ashes, for example. You know, ashes. Um, if somebody burns wood, then ashes become very radioactive. You have to bury them somewhere. So that's a constant effort. You have to be thinking about it. You have to be doing something. And farmers are very busy. They are busy people, and they they don't have many resources. So it becomes a very difficult problem that I think requires infrastructural solutions. And in fact, I think that dealing with long-term consequences of accidents and catastrophes really almost always requires some kind of infrastructural solutions. It, you know, people can't just fix it all for themselves. Do you have a do you have a sense of, or is there a sense of what percentage of the population lives in contaminated areas? So, so immediately after the accident, about 23% of the territory was contaminated with long-living radionuclides, especially celsium-137, the, half, you know, the half-life of which is about 30 years. So the doses now, right, sort of the, um, the, what people are exposed to now is really significantly less than it was even like 10 years ago or 20 years ago or immediately after the accident. But at the same time, um, the authorities have um, the sort of the Belarusian government has reclassified um, a lot of areas, right? Sort of they have a model of um, how much the areas should be affected, and you know what should be called contaminated areas, and what areas can now be considered clean. This is a pretty theoretical model now, so I'm not sure to what extent it's kind of backed by you know actual empirical measurements. And part of the problem is that. According, for example, to Belarad radio, uh, radiologists, so Independent Institute of Radiation Protection, Belarad, they do their own measurements, and they believe that um, internal doses don't, sort of the doses don't decrease that much on their own, right? So um, they decrease where local authorities actually do something, right, kind of create better conditions, but they don't decrease on their own. Um, I, I won't be able to, to give you numbers partially because they're changing and, um, you know, the book came out two and a half years ago. So I don't really know. So you spoke about the initial media, the use of the media and the role of the media in, in bringing the catastrophe to light and discussions about, you know, how to deal with it. So why don't you talk about how this 
representation of Chernobyl in the Belarusian media has changed over time since, say, 1988 to when you were done with your research? This was the most interesting part for me. So I I went to Belarus and I did um, I kind of I began with interviews, and I um, had this problem that it seemed like um, people are echoing something. There's some kind of I'm getting the tail end of some conversation, and I should reconstruct the whole conversation. So this is when I decided to go to the library and look at essentially 25 years of um, Sovietska Belarusia, which is one of the government-controlled, pretty much, um, newspapers. It's the official, um, one of the official newspapers. Now it's, uh, it's called Belarusivodnya. Um, so I looked at 25 years of Sovietska Belarusia, and I... What I, I describe it as waves of invisibility. You can see massive fluctuations in how Chernobyl is discussed. And um, you can see this historical, so th- this are kind of historical fluctuations in where the consequences of Chernobyl are assumed to be, right? Like sort of territorially, where, where is contamination? And when the consequences will appear, you know, are they temporary? Are they long term? How long are they going to last? And then what kinds of consequences did Chernobyl have? And how does one even observe Chernobyl's consequences? So all of this changes through the time. And I called it waves of um, invisibility, these historical fluctuations. As a quick note, it's, it's easy to show in the media coverage, but the same thing also happens, you know, it kind of the same waves of invisibility um, happen in state regulations. So kind of the concept of uh, radiation protection also changes. And then in, they kind of similarly reflected in state research institutions. They also change, you know, with this kind of changes in state recognition of what is Chernobyl and where is it and, you know, how do we observe it? So the first, the first two or three years after the accident, as I mentioned, the consequences are described as very um, limited. They're limited spatially, but also they're limited in time. They're very temporary. And there's little coverage. There's some coverage, so it's not absent, but the, the coverage is uh, pretty much, you know, um, about the zone of special attention and how pioneers, you know, are sent to camps away from the zone. And, uh, but also top Soviet scientists like Leonid Ilyin, the director of the Institute of Biophysics, and some international figures like Hans Blix, the, um, at the time he was the director general of International Atomic Energy Agency, they, they all reassure that there are no risks for, uh, for the general population. Right? So everything is kind of denied, very, um, recognition is very limited. And then around late 88, the coverage explodes. Like it, it, just, it really grows exponentially. And it becomes with this um, decision to develop, this, the communist leadership decision to develop the five-year plan for overcoming the consequences of the accident. And then there is this pushback from the uh, Belarusian opposition and Belarusian scientists propose their own concept. The Soviet leadership and the, you know, the top Soviet scientists resist. But, in, but, but then there's still more coverage. Like there's a lot more coverage and there are maps of contamination and there are tables showing levels of radiation in different um, areas and um can, can i ask can i ask you is the coverage mostly technical or is it also like covering people's experiences people who had to be relocated things like this yes it definitely includes stories uh from people and um at that period yes but also it, it there's little um coverage of strikes there are also strikes in, for example, in the in Gomel um, area, in Gomel Oblast, in Gomel region. But 
not as much coverage of strikes, but there are stories from uh, from you know people living in the affected areas, and uh, the language changes, right? So it's no longer an accident. It now it's catastrophe. It is tragedy. The Belarusian concept of radiation protection is adopted, and then the laws, the two Chernobyl laws, are passed in ninety um, one, and then uh, the Soviet Union also collapses. Right after the collapse of the Soviet Union, there's still there's still much coverage of Chernobyl, but this is also a very difficult economic period, right? And um, Chernobyl, the coverage of Chernobyl becomes mostly it focuses on um, economic problems. So even though economic aspects that people had to be relocated, that people, you know, there, there, there are all kinds of problems, um, local economic problems, administrative problems, that has been there all the time, right? But now it's pretty much the sole focus of coverage, right? It's, it's all about Chernobyl becomes an economic problem. And there are a lot of calls for international assistance, there's this belief that we adopted, you know, Chernobyl laws. We can show that we have been really affected. You have to help us. And there are calls for also local assistance. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to collect money even. some. And then um, Lukashenko, so the current president, is elected in 1994. And starting from, I don't know, I would say 98, there is this turn. So in the period, um, in the mid-90s, Right. Chernobyl becomes not a radiological catastrophe, it's economic catastrophe, it's an economic problem. Right? And then later, in the late 90s, so the, the focus is to, to talk about Chernobyl, is to talk about rehabilitation of the contaminated areas. Nobody's going to help us. We've, you know, we still have to leave there. It's like radiation, I'm quoting, radiation hasn't left completely, but people have to learn you know, to grow clean vegetables. We have to rehabilitate um, these areas and, you know, continue living there. And then I call it rehabilitation and so normalization of the discourse, right? It's, it's all about how life there can be. Life endures. We, uh, you know, we can continue living there. And Chernobyl itself becomes, it's kind of like historical symbol and event. This is also late 90s is the period when um, the Belarusian concept of radiation protection is, uh, there are some attempts to change it again. And um, some areas are being reclassified. So approaches to radiation protection are changing. And as a result, the area is kind of like shrinking. So the government is still trying to do a lot in terms of radiation protection, but the areas are still shrinking. And like in 2013, um, um, you know, you can already read quotes like, we have successfully overcome um, Chernobyl consequences. It's interesting. Does the, did, would you say the narrative of Chernobyl coincides with the narrative of the country? Yes. Because that's yes. what it seems to me that this, this you know, the, the move from tragedy, you know, into it's a catastrophe, it's an economic problem, it, it, it pretty much mimics the, 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 the general issue of the day in the mid 90s. And then towards the end of the 90s, there's kind of a, um, a, a, a discourse of recovery or reconstruction. And I'm wondering if that is the political tenor at that same time from the government, or even within the population. Perhaps, but I, I think more um, importantly is, um... Well, at least you cannot also overlook the role of scientists and um, the opposition. So I think what's unique about 
the discourse after Chernobyl and kind of dealing with Chernobyl consequences is that area of um, massive visibility in in the last years of the Soviet Union. That's entirely unprecedented, and it is um, it, it's delayed, right? It's not immediately after the accident. So it's not because of the accident. It's like two and a half, three years later. And this period of, it's not just a lot of discussion in the media and a, um, a significantly more sensitive and complex um, concept of radiation protection. So the standards are changing to become more kind of practical and um, applicable and kind of, but it's also, um, this is the period when, um, Four research institutions, um, uh, institutes are created to deal specifically with Chernobyl's consequences. So the institutes are created and um, there are researchers working um, on this problem. So, so, they, so they're trying to figure out what are um, the cons- radiological consequences and kind of what are radiation health effects. So I think it's this unbelievable period of openness and possible political resistance but also hopes for international assistance, right? It was, it's, it still is a, a period when, um, you know, the resources are, you know, they're not ample. But is this, is, but what about the, in the late nineties and the early two thousands when, cause you said that there is a, there is a change in the discourse to one that, well, we have to live with this. We have to deal with it. We have to, you know, basically get over the, the catastrophe in some way, right. To somehow to deal with it. And I, I found this quite interesting, and I'm wondering if there is a correlation between that sentiment around Chernobyl and what if there's a sentiment amongst within, say, political society too under Lukashenko uh, of a similar discourse. So I, I it, y- y- perhaps, but also uh, y- maybe, but also there is um, that they gave up hope for international assistance. This is like you know it has officially been established that the hopes that we will demonstrate health effects of radiation and as a result receive a lot of international assistance, um, it didn't work out. International assistance on the level of civil organizations and NGOs was phenomenal, right? So, um, you know, all kinds of children of Chernobyl um, help, right? But it wasn't on the state level. And so I think that the government, the kind of, there's this realization that there will not be international assistance on, on the scope that we hoped to see. And they received very little assistance through the UN. And as a result, they change approaches to radiation protection and, and and also just general realization that this is a pretty significant area in the country and people will still have to be living there. So we kind of have to normalize. But, uh, but strangely, after that was done, sort of after Chernobyl was reframed as a mostly economic problem, then there was also more um, assistance through the UN. Yeah, let's t- let's talk about that a bit. So, w- what role did these uh, international organizations, like the International Atomic Energy Agency and the World Health Organization, and and other even NGOs, what what did they do? What was their role in dealing with Chernobyl? Of all the perspectives on the scope of Chernobyl's effects, it seems that um, the perspective of the International Atomic Energy Agency or um, you know, other UN experts, including with the health, a World Health Organization or the United Nations. Um, I, uh, anyway, so the UN experts, that um, their perspective is m- most unyielding, I would say. In 2005, there is a report 
uh, there's a joint news news release issued by, um, if I'm not mistaken, International Atomic. It's um, the Chernobyl Forum news release, and it's issued by the International Atomic Energy Agency, the World Health Health Organization, and the UN Developmental Development Program. And it says that fewer than 50 deaths um, have been directly attributed to radiation from the disaster, almost all uh, being highly exposed rescue workers. So according to this agency, agencies, the only observable health effects in the general population is an increase in thyroid cancer in children. And that has a really interesting story in its own. But from the perspective of local scientists, one researcher told me that we, meaning Belarusian scientists, have a presumption of guilt. We do research and it is assumed, it is assumed to be wrong until proven right. So they disagree with um, this assessment and also, you know, they feel like they have to fight a lot to, to show the credibility of their finding. And um, it took a while to have increase in thyroid cancer in children um, be- actually recognize the consequences of Chernobyl. But that happened, um, if I'm not mistaken, around like 86. And part of it was because um, Evgeny Dimitchik, who was the head um, researcher, um, he was uniquely well positioned he, you know, he, um, to kind of like deal with thyroid cancer in children. He's been doing it for a while before the accident, even though in Belarus you, you would see normally like one or two cases of thyroid cancer a year, right? So he was um, very established, um, experienced, and um, there was also an established register, which matters, right? So there was an established register with some history showing how, and uh, also it was, there was some kind of general consensus that pre-existing scientific consensus that thyroid is sensitive to radiation exposure. Exposure. And they documented that um, increase in thyroid cancers in children, they, this, it was located um, in, it was kind of focused in the most affected areas and they could show how, you know, how, how cleanly it increased, especially since thyroid cancer in children is pretty rare, right? So like, you know, rise um, was a kind of, you, you could show it pretty clearly. But uh, it was, the data is messy for um, other, um, other health conditions. So when I began doing research in Belarus, and that was around 2005, I felt that these local researchers, they have been struggling, you know, trying to establish effects for a while. And they were a little, um, they were demoralized, but also the conditions in the country were changing. So research institutes were kind of the, you know, political leadership of these research institutes changed. What research was encouraged in the country also changed. So it wasn't as easy to maintain research programs. And then in 2003, all the key research institutes um, working on Chernobyl were relocated to Gomel from Minsk. So uh, researchers were faced with an option of either, you know, stop, um, they had to stop doing Chernobyl-related or radiation-related re- research, or they had to relocate to Gomel. So there was um, not everybody obviously stayed um, was the topic. And so why do you think that the, um, these international organizations were so reluctant? To, I mean, and aside from the, the data being messy, but there seems to also be a general reluctance to recognize certain effects of, of radiation because of Chernobyl? So I only read the reports, right? I didn't do, um, I didn't do in nearly enough interviews with international experts. So I, I cannot say, but there is really, um, there is an insistence on speaking in kind of in one voice, 
So being kind of presenting authoritative knowledge and presenting it in one voice. So kind of like reducing what is studied to what is certain. So kind of reducing the presentation of um, research to um, what has already been established about radiation health effects. So kind of, um, and not as willing perhaps um, and I'm saying this very kind of carefully because, again, I haven't done um, interviews with experts themselves. I only, uh, it's all based on reports. Though there were a lot of um, international research missions um, to Belarus, really quite an extraordinary number, but um, there wasn't as much willingness to engage with sort of with local conditions and try to focus on the effects of the radiation factor, kind of like, you know, see um, perhaps how, and I think that it could have been done. And finally, um, you note that the politics of invisibility around Chernobyl reflects kind of larger power dynamics. And I think you've, you've, you see, you've already mentioned many of these in our conversation, but if you can kind of summarize them. So what does Chernobyl say about power relations in, in Belarus more generally and its relationship to the international arena? That surprisingly, the waves of um, invisibility reflect um, the conditions of openness, right? Sort of um, op openness or, you know, restriction of possibilities to kind of investigate and to speak about um, Chernobyl's effects. And um, they mirror the visibility of Chernobyl mirrors. We talked about it a little earlier. It mirrors political transformations in the country and the period of the greatest openness and perhaps naive hope for international assistance is also the period of the most serious and structural um, effort to um, document effects of Chernobyl. And later, it's not like research on Chernobyl stops afterwards, right? But there is less, um, it's more affected by the international perspective. And as a result, um, what researchers are documenting now is they're not trying to separate the radiation factor. So kind of isolate what radiation, um, sort of radiation as a risk factor, right? Radiation exposure is a risk factor. Instead, they're focusing on ecological consequences of Chernobyl. So it's like radiation and everything else. <laughs> it's, uh, we are seeing that people are less healthy in these areas, but we can't um, pointed to um, radiation as necessarily the causal factor, which is significantly, um, it has kind of less power. But, uh, but generally, uh, back to your question, I think that uh, waves of invisibility mirror the political transformation. To me, the most important part of the book and the most um, interesting um, discovery was this period of massive visibility that coincided with the last years of the Soviet Union. So it didn't follow the collapse. It wasn't after the collapse of the Soviet Union. It's the last years of the Soviet Union. So the period of um, greater openness and uh, resistance, but also hope, right? This kind of like, they were less constrained by, um, so they haven't realized yet that there will be no assist. And, and also the... Um, after the Chernobyl laws were adopted, all kinds of Chernobyl programs were a massive part of the state budget. So it became a huge burden. And without much international assistance, it, it really was a burden. That was Olga Kuczynskaya, an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Pittsburgh. She specializes in science communication related to health and the environment. She's the author of The Politics of Invisibility, Public Knowledge About Radiation Health Effects After Chernobyl, published by MIT Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog. 
write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to everyone who's been contributing. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye.